Hello, I'm Julia Samuel, a grief psychotherapist and author of Grief Works, and I'm delighted to be recording a podcast today with Sir Anthony Selden, who's headmaster of Wellington College for over 20 years, who is a prolific author and vice-chancellor of Buckingham University, amongst many other roles. And he's kind enough to talk to me today about the death of his much-loved wife, Joanna. So, Anthony, we've never met. Um, this life. In this life. And so I feel very honoured that you've agreed to come and talk to me about Joanna and your relationship with her and and her death. Um, and And I guess we haven't talked that much about it before, but... What I'm hoping to do through these podcasts and talking to you is to kind of model that we do need to be talking about these things more than we do, that I think there's a kind of magical thinking that if we don't talk about death and dying, that in some way it's not going to happen to us, it happens to other people. Um, So I really appreciate you coming to talk to me. Thank you for asking me. And I wondered... When I read about her, one of the things that really struck me was that she prepared her funeral, her last lesson plan. And so you two, it feels like you two had a lot of conversations before she died, and I just wondered if you could talk to me about that. Not enough conversations, uh, because I think it's very hard to actually recognise what is going to happen. There's something unreal uh, about incurable illness and the certainty of death, uh, which is um, different to the actual experience. So it's a bit like um, reading a guidebook to to what's going to happen um, and then the experience of being in Florence or in Reykjavik is uh, different, um, utterly different. So she did uh, think a lot about it. She was diagnosed five years, uh, five and a quarter years before she died. Um, She was diagnosed in the summer of 2011 and she died in December 16 so she did have a long time to think about it and prepare herself but even with her I don't think that it fully dawned on her until really the last two or three days that said she did um prepare her own memorial service and left very clear instructions about what she would like to happen and who she'd like to read and the pieces of music that she would like to have played. And she wrote down why. Uh, So she talked about a piece of music by Arvo Part. Spiegel in Im Spiegel, which she heard going to Lewis in Sussex, uh, Tesco's, or was it Waitrose? <laughs> and um, she just had to stop the car. So she was thinking about it, 
and in her own way preparing the children for it. So it sounds like it's like working on two levels, isn't there, in some kind of... You know, people talk about grief starting at the point of diagnosis when she first got that diagnosis five and a quarter years ago. So there was a way that that shock, you kind of know that you're more mortal, but there's another part of you that doesn't quite believe it until the kind of hers was two or three days before. And was that the same for you, or you were you more aware? I think that it's a question of layers yeah, um, and different way. experiences. So I would notice from quite early on when people would ask me how they were. So I used to be a headmaster, and people would ask me on the netball or the football or rugby touchlines how she was and I'd suddenly find myself feeling inexplicably upset like so, it hit you a new kind of thing when they yeah, asked you yeah the, the, you know, there'd be a wave of emotion that would mm. come in I did talk to friends who'd lost their partners suddenly whether it was worse to have that happening or mm. to have a long protracted process I mean worse I mean obviously in every conceivable way one wants the person to live on mm. for as long as possible but in this, from the point of view of grief handling the grief mm. um, you know but there's parts of me now three months after she's died that still doesn't believe that she's really gone no. uh, you know I, I can see her toothbrush and toothpaste by mine in the in our bathroom, and I, there are her two brightly coloured dressing gowns on the back of the door, which mm. I didn't want removed. And the, all her clothes, she always had masses of clothes, masses and masses of clothes in all the drawers. And she always had three or four times the drawer space that I had. You know, the, it's just constant reminders. Sometimes seeing something, but sometimes it's just a thought that just comes out of a blue sky. So, it, it, you know, I still don't totally believe she's gone. No, it does feel very... I mean, coming to speak to me so soon after she died feels very courageous of you, and I really appreciate it. And there was so poignant, those images of the toothbrushes and her clothes, and it feels like her... There's such a presence of her absence that it's sort of impossible to believe that she's not she's not with you because she's still so much of her is part of you and, and in your house. Yes. Um, going to bed in the same bed uh, and being downstairs and deliberately sitting in the chair that she would sit at in the kitchen with her things still spread out in front of her these are all images which are more comforting than upsetting. Because they're um, a way really. of connecting to her. Yeah, yes. I mean, so my own sense is that, yes, there was a moment that she died, but part of me had been adjusting to it for five years before, mm. and part of it is still adjusting and mm. will carry on adjusting for, I'm sure and many more years than that into the future. What you're saying, I think, is so uh, 
kind of wise and also kind of instinctive that the, when the person that you love has died, despite their death, the relationship in some way continues. It's a radically different relationship. But it feels like she, you're finding ways of her being part of you, although she's died. Yes, I mean, I think that the relationship changed not the moment that she had the diagnosis, but the first time that she got ill with her cancer. Um, when it was clear her body was not performing properly. Mm. There was a phony war period for the first few months when she'd had this diagnosis. But it was so much better than the initial diagnosis, which still did still did traumatise me when we were told that she might mm. only have three months to live. Gosh. But once I was over that, it felt very different until she got ill mm. you know and since then our relationship changed because you can't carry on having the same physical relationship with somebody who is very ill but what was interesting was that I felt that we achieved an altogether new level of closeness and indeed intimacy way deeper and beyond the intimacy that we'd had when our bodies were healthy. And I think I felt that I fell in love with her again mm. or in a different way, but not as a um, as a shadow of herself and all out of pity, but her essence her soul, her, her undefended uh, truth about herself. Um, so the relationship deepened, um, even as it narrowed. Indeed, its narrowing was a deepening. There's something very poignant about that, and it feels that kind of paradox that on the one hand, as you say, the, your physical relationship changed... But out of that grew something that was deeper and had a, a new kind of relationship where you fell in love with, with her whole being in a different way. Yes, I think that's correct. And um, all my life I've always been very keen on time, uh, on measuring time and helping people to realise how short time is so as a head I would be telling our upper six formers that there were only 111 days to go till A-levels mm. began or the International Baccalaureate and um, with prime ministers and other leaders I'm always writing and advising if they will listen that the time is short and um, uh, and that most leaderships end in disappointment mm. because people don't make the most of it uh, while they have the opportunity. I think that's the same for vice-chancellors and for um, head teachers and for heads of uh, publishing houses. And But generally, life. whoever we are, whoever, yeah. whatever we do in life... And whatever our relationship, so I was, we were keen to try to make 
the most of it. But that didn't mean spending time exclusively together because Joe was always a very private person who liked spending time on her own and uh, was much more of a woman's woman than a man's than a man's woman. She was much happier in the company of other women. And so she went on holiday with girlfriends to Florence um, and she'd planned to make a number of trips that sadly didn't happen, her closest friend to New York. Um, and so it was about savouring the time that we had. Mm. I thought it would be five years and so it proved. I always had that instinct. But certainly being very aware of trying to make the most of our times together, even then I wished we'd spent more weekends going away. But I think that she did lead her own life very fully and did much of what she wanted to do. We both, oh, a couple of years ago, we were, I think, at lunch in France together and we wrote out our wish list for what we wanted to do before the rest of our lives were over. Oh, lovely. And I found it in her bedside table. My gosh. And it was interesting and it was incredibly touching and affecting to see what uh, she'd written. And she was able to do quite a bit of it. Oh, good. What I'm getting from what you're saying is that we, a kind of lesson from your relationship with Joanna is that we really do need to seize the days that we have and live fully the days and the life that we've got and, and appreciate and value them. And I know that very much links to what you introduced to Wellington, wasn't it, about well-being and happiness and sort of focusing on gratitude on being grateful for what you what you have so I guess it's that attitude supported you both while she was ill and I don't know if it is now feels like it is there is something inherent about the human condition that is very discontented so we do not think that every day we're not grateful for the fact that we have food and many of us, not everybody, uh, and often rather lovely varied food and we have shelter and security and our lives are not threatened by others as they were for Millennia. our lives. Um, mm. We tend to think what we don't have. We tend to think we don't have the latest model of a car or... Handbag or, or, or sex with our life, wife is not as good, or our husband is not as good as uh, those people next door, or as somebody's writing in film. Yeah, um, Fifty Shades or whatever it is. Great. Being deeply connected with pleasure, but not happiness, mm. and, and our lives are about maximising pleasure, which is always about me, and which will never be satisfied. It kind of leaves ever, you hungry, doesn't it? That ever. seeking pleasure. Um, and happiness is different. Happiness does come from connection. And you know, very obviously, uh, many people with their children, with their spouses, with their siblings, 
spend all the time thinking about what they don't have rather than what they do have. And this is because we don't come into the same space. So when we kiss, we breathe the same air as each other. We can't not breathe the same air. But kissing emotionally and uh, psychologically and spiritually indeed is about moving into the same space where we breathe each other's time. We're both living in the present moment. Sort of heart space in a way. When we are in the present moment, our hearts are open. Our hearts cannot not be open and be in the present space. We can't be awake and not be full of compassion and connection. And so for me, a lot of it was about discovering the reality of those great people like uh, endless people, Martin Buber, um, talking about the I and our relationship, mm. not as a theory, but as a reality. As a so, living experience. So, and this is what I think being in love means. Being in love means being in that same where we're inhaling each other's time. We, we are present for each other. And so it was very clear to me looking at doctors and far more importantly, uh, clear to Joanna, the nurses and doctors who had come in, those who were not present and those who were more present or fully present. Mm. We can all be present. Mindfulness helps us to get there. And it's the quality that makes the most of relationships, as I found with Joanna. And it also makes the most of our job, so it makes the most of the leader's time or the... Um, head teacher's time or whatever we are in life, mm. not to regret uh, what we didn't do. I mean, I wonder if you were talking to someone who was in a position you were in five years ago who's been mm. given a diagnosis that their partner, whether it's a wife or a husband, has a life-threatening diagnosis. What have you learned? What would you say to that person? Don't stop your work. I thought at one time about stopping working after I left the school I was at called Wellington College. Uh, I think it's important that we carry on, but that we use all the opportunities, not just to be together, but to be together. So clearly just spending time with somebody if our heads are full of aggravation and resentment. But having um, presence with each other. Being present. Um, I mean, I think building sex, memories. I, I think sex helps a lot with that. I mean, I think it's very hard when we're in love with somebody and making love, you are in the present with them. Otherwise, it's just a kind of exercise in masturbation and pleasure and there is no human connectedness or spiritual connectedness. And the interesting thing is when we are together, the separation ceases. I mean, to be in love with somebody means that you lose the separation because you are in some sense one, one you are one, you're beyond that one, you are one. And that, I think, is a spiritual secret 
secret of uh, physical relationships, but emotional relationships too. And though it sounds like you're saying to someone who would be in your position to uh, to kind of be emotionally present with them. Well, okay. So um, the advice in answer to your question is to carry on doing what you're doing for the person who's ill to not withdraw, to manage their lives, but to keep going outward, keep doing everything that they enjoy doing, because that will, um, I think, elongate life. I agree. And I talk about living. that in the book, that you need both. Yeah. You need to kind of have your structure and your purpose and your work, because you can't kind of be emotionally present and grieving all the time, that mm. doing one, in a way, frees you to do the other. Yeah. No, and I you can, can get I, energy from that. I can recognise that, and I think it also reduces resentment. I think it's quite easy to resent somebody in the same way that it is if our partner loses their mobility and we have to spend a lot of time at home uh, with them. That can either make us more in love or make us more resentful, more out of love with that person. So definitely uh, keep going, keep active, keep engaged, keep finding the special time, not just for each other if one does have a partner, uh, and with the children. I think it's very important for that person to write letters. Joanna wrote to each of the three children. Did she? Which she called an ethical will. And um, these were handwritten letters that she wrote several months ago to them. And I think that's a very good thing to do. And the child, and not just to children, but to siblings, parents spouse, in part because you don't know how wrecked you might be when you suddenly realise that there's no way out, and whether you'll have the physical strength and the opportunity to write, um, but it also gives one the composure to write in a considered way, and those letters will be there for life, I can't imagine yeah. our children will ever... Uh, not want to read and hold those letters so in their hearts. So I think that's a very important thing to to do and to reassure um, them and to spend time with each of them as she did. You know, it's difficult. It was difficult for her because she was often in pain and finding life difficult. And it was baffling for her. But she was able, because she was given the gift of five and a bit years, to prepare her relationship with those she loved mm. and with others and to do much of what she wanted to do, including writing more poems, which are now published, and writing her memorial service and writing a book about her father which she was writing until about two weeks before her death. I mean I imagine those letters will be yours, her siblings and her children's most, one of their most precious possessions because it, certainly with people that I've worked with and I talk about in the book is that your relationship with the person that's died can become very confused and you can wonder 
is what I'm feeling real, but they can go back to the letters and kind of find her and find how she felt about them. And Yeah, I mean, definitely. So I've now written a letter to all three children, and I will... I don't have any known illness, um, but you never know. And I think it's a good thing for parents. I mean, I'm 63, and it's never too early to write a letter to those one most loves and one siblings and to those people who have meant much to one in one's life. Uh, it spreads happiness and as you say there is a befuddlement and a confusion and a doubt in those who are left behind about them and having something palpable like a handwritten letter or indeed a type letter I imagine uh, also uh, probably equally as good is a tangible verification of um, an affirmation mm. and a validation of oneself and what one meant to that person and best qualities yes yes one of the things I I often find in families when a parent dies is that the whole configuration of the family shifts and changes. And it takes a lot of work to kind of reconfigure how you are together when someone has died, whether it's one of the children that's mm. died or whether it's a parent that's died. And I don't know if that's something that you're aware of yet or how you are as a family now that Joanna isn't with you anymore. Well... She will always be with us, and I think it's important, another lesson would be to acknowledge that that person is always with us. After all, 99.9% of, 99.9% maybe, of children's lives are spent away from one's parents and not on communication with them. So we're just talking about the 1% when physically they're there renewing and updating relationships. So they can still be very much present in thoughts and psychologically they form the person, each of us. So I think it's important that they carry on living. Yes, of course, relationships will change. And um, she was such a quiet, powerful, soft, strong presence in all our lives so the children will need to press and refine and expand their notions of who they are mm. uh, um, in the world in which she's no longer physically palpably, present, palpably present mm. yeah. it's early days being a man and feeling pain and being a man who's a vice president of university and no you're a vice chancellor sorry um that was that was painful being downgraded but sorry I, I, I'm, can, <laughs> I can take it do you think as a society or as a, uh, your friends respond to you differently as if you if than if you'd been a woman how have you been able to speak to your friends about her? Have you been able to show your grief? Have you? How have you done it with close family and friends and your work? How have you managed both? Well, I, I think 
as a head teacher where you have a very big psychological shaping role for children as significant in some ways as their own parents and I was head for 20 years and I was also trying to move beyond just my own school to talk about how young people should be brought up so I mean there's a big shaping role there and I would always be saying to males as well as females about the importance of being oneself and uh, being authentic and uh, getting in touch with one's feelings and articulating one's feelings um, so um, and that's been help for me for by spending 35 years meditating which is about um, being aware of what's inside I mean there's still a huge amount of self-deceit in me and self-denial um, I think we need a bit of both don't we Ooh, I suppose so, but I'd love not to have them. Um, I, I find huge um, uh, freedom and safety in disclosure. I rarely feel more secure than when I'm on a stage talking to people. Mm. And um, it just feels very easy and natural. Although it used to scare me to death when I first became a teacher and my legs would knock together um, and my voice would stutter. I have a slight stutter. Um, what are men like with you, other men, your contemporaries? Um, oh, the best people are just natural and... Um, let me be how I want to be you know I mean it some people just intuitively everyone tries to do their best but some people intuitively get it right I mean often you know hugs are better than words mm. I mean words can be a bit of a fuck up can't they yeah. um, and uh, whereas the power of physical contact and the acceptance takes one way beyond a 10,000 word conversation and yet and yet words can also be wonderfully affirming and supportive Joanna had a way with words didn't she yes she did I've always been better I think with women anyway so Joanna was more of a, always more of a woman's woman, I was more of a woman's man, but I've always liked the company of, of men, it's just I found that what men talk about is often less interesting so men talk about politics, books they've read possessions they own uh, <laughs> sport obviously the news um, much less intimacy uh, and that's okay, I can do all that but um, I'm always much more interested in being asked the difficult questions and connecting deeply with people because I can usually see what they're thinking anyway. And um, Joanna always thought I could be better with blokes. Um, and... Um, uh, 
but I think that was okay. So, uh, and and so I've tried to be honest, and sometimes I feel, some days I feel very down. But you know, it's very different to being depressed. I've been three or four times in my life, three and a half times when I've been depressed for about six months a year and that is a shocker and I've never once felt like that now sadness grief is different so this morning when I was in the bathroom something I'd seen Joanna's flannel or something I just suddenly felt I just felt a howl of pain mm. and yet the just comes through, flows through for about a minute or two. Um, and part of me knows that it's not that bad. Um, it doesn't totally destroy me in the way that depression used to. I mean, I could see it in you as you were speaking then, like it hit you again. But I guess the difference is that you let it flow through you. Mm. You didn't try and stop it. It's like the weather, you let it come through your system. Yeah, I wouldn't know how to. The early days, uh, so she died, we all got back home, sat around the kitchen table, got back about one, sat around drinking whiskey. That first day felt once or twice. I'm not certain I can handle this, but I've never felt that apart from that day, not on the day of the funeral when we were all determined to be very to work all four of us the three children and me to try and reassure and comfort people we knew some people were very distressed so we had we capped numbers in the grizzly um golders green crematorium and we had about 150 and it was um that was in a way easier because we could see everybody and hug them and thank them and the memorial was more difficult because there were many more and we didn't get around to everybody but again we were determined that we were not going to be overwhelmed by the grief of others. These events in a way made it easier to cope. So I mean I would say two or three times every day I will be overcome by waves of grief coming in like weather fronts mm. and it's both uh, very sad but also ultimately consoling because um, it's there's it's very painful and it's very overwhelming but there's an element of sweetness about the pain too uh, very different to depression is what the yeah. big conclusion, yeah. I think that bittersweetness is... It's hard to kind of unpick it, isn't it? But it's it's almost like the level of your pain is representing the level of your love. It's almost like it connects you to her, but also you're giving her her due. It's... It, I don't know if that makes sense or not. Yes. Well, this is the time of Lent, and sorry for admitting that I'm religious and spiritual. 
sure you don't need to apologise. And that at this time she was Jewish. I was kind of Christian Jewish. I'm Christian Jewish, whatever that means. Um, and um, I'm trying to spend six weeks very much with her, talking to her a lot, and um, and she feels very present. And um, I'm very conscious of finding that position between indulging and rushing through things. So I'm trying to keep myself very empty. I've stopped drinking alcohol. Um, I've um, cut right back on anything that's kind of indulgent or would stop me feeling any... I'm trying to lead very simply and purely and to assimilate and connect with everything that's inside me. At some point, I will move on. We but it's like talk. you want to be present mm. for your grief. It's like you. I want to be absolutely present for my grief. But we did talk about my moving on. She was very clear she didn't want me to settle down with two people in particular, <laughs> uh, which is very funny. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> I missed all that side of Joanna so much of our life together. It was just funny. She made mm. me laugh so much. We, we both made each other laugh a lot. Mm. Um, but at some time... I will settle down, but I know that I'll always be in love with her, even if, and it may not happen, I find somebody else to fall in love with. I can carry that duality with me, and indeed I wouldn't want to be with anybody else for whom, or with with whom there wasn't that space to be in love with her forever. Yeah. I mean, that feels a very poignant place to stop in the sense that you... You're being very present for your grief now and for the length of time it takes. You're kind of going to let it run its course. But you also kind of want to have hope for a future. It wouldn't be without her. It would be with her in you and you're always loving her. Mm. But it would also allow you and give you permission to love again Mm. very differently in a very different way. But it can allow both. Mm If you've enjoyed this podcast, please support it by rating and reviewing it. Thank you.